Welcome to the Intelligent Squad podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In today's episode, we're sharing a recording from a recent live event produced in partnership with Sotheby's. This event, which took place at Sotheby's in New York, is the first of two literary talks to mark Sotheby's Book Week, a suite of auctions focused on rare books and manuscripts taking place in London, New York, and Paris in July 2023. In this conversation, writer and essayist Adam Gopnik and academic Dr. Anika Prava joined Selby Kiffer, Senior Vice President at Sotheby's, to explore the historical significance in documents by America's founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and George Washington, featured in Sotheby's upcoming auction. You can visit sotheby's.com and find out more about these fascinating papers, which are included in the New York auction on Tuesday, 18th of July. And now I'll hand over to our moderator, Simon Shaw, Vice Chairman at Sotheby's New York, to kick off the conversation. Hello and welcome, everybody. My name is Simon Shaw. Uh, I'm Vice Chairman of Global Fine Arts here at Sotheby's, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this conversation organized in partnership with our friends at Intelligence Squared. Today's talk is part of Sotheby's Book Week, a series of auctions taking place in London, Paris, and New York featuring literature, illustrations, and musical manuscripts that span continents and centuries. Today, we're focusing on the Founding Fathers, and in particular on some extraordinary documents coming up here at Sotheby's that shed light on the early history of America. We're going to be discussing why it's important to read the actual words of the Founding Fathers, discovering what complex individuals they were, the disagreements they had among themselves, and what that tells us about the importance of civil discourse in the United States today. I'm lucky to have with me three very distinguished speakers. Dr. Annika Prada, Director of High Quality Curriculum and Instruction at the Johns Hopkins Institute for Educational Policy, who's written and spoken extensively about the importance of the canon in the black intellectual tradition. Adam Gopnik, author and staff writer at The New Yorker, who's published a number of fascinating articles about the Founding Fathers in recent times. And my colleague, Selby Kiefer, International Senior Specialist Books and Manuscripts here at Sotheby's in New York. So let's dig in. Adam, I want to begin with you in this post-Hamilton age. Uh, let me start by asking you how you believe we should be remembering the Founding Fathers today. Well, there, there are kind of two basic responses or reflexes, I think, that, you, that we observe, Simon. One is an impulse to revere. Um, it's a kind of what the French call a secret de pochonnel, an open secret, that there is no formula for a bestseller so certain as writing a new biography of a founding father, or a founding mother for that matter, whether it's John Adams or Abigail Adams, Alexander Hamilton or George Washington. There remains a remarkable and profound reservoir of interest and curiosity about that, that generation in American audiences. You can contrast it, Simon, if you'll allow me a moment of impertinence, with the relative lack of curiosity or knowledge of the makers of the English Revolution 100 years before in the UK, or for that matter, here in America. I did a long piece uh, not long ago about the English Revolution. And though there were as many passionate egalitarian ideologues in 1680 as there in London as there were in uh, uh, 1770 in the United States, they tend to have been submerged into history, been forgotten, and are the subjects of a sporadic revival in a way that the Founding Fathers have been perpetual presences. You see it reflected, I think, even in the handwriting. There's, there's the inheritance of the Enlightenment is present in that beautifully clear, italic, cursive handwriting 
that we see in these in these documents, where as against the kind of crab still, uh, uh, what's it called, secretary hand of uh, the 17th century England. So the founding fathers are present for us. One response is to revere. No more powerful act of reverence than the most successful modern American musical, Hamilton, which was, to my shock, the first time I saw it down at the public theater, I assumed would be an ironic Brechtian take on the life yeah. of Alexander Hamilton, and in fact is a completely yes. reverential yes. tribute yes. to the life and human flaws and human greatness of Alexander Hamilton, played entirely by people of color. But um, nonetheless, the lesson of it is, is these are our ancestors, not ancestors of those who are alien to us. Terrifically moving thing. Against that, of course, is the revisionist take, our readiness and our willingness to recognize what has long been whitewashed, to use an unfortunate verb perhaps, but that is the, the reality that so many of the founding fathers were slaveholders, or at least sympathetic to, tolerant of the institution of slavery in the United States, imperfect in themselves, whether it was Jefferson's own secret life or Benjamin Franklin's own uh, libidinal life abroad in France. So those two impulses, I think, a reverential one and a revisionist one, uh, go hand in hand and, and make a kind of complicated and entangled dance in our imaginations. It's certainly a narrative that, that's twisting and turning over time, mm -hmm. I suppose, like any foundational story. And I think, Annika, that it's for that reason that it's perhaps ever more important that we connect with the primary sources yeah. here. Why, why do you think the access to the, to the original words is more critical than ever today? Well, I think it protects us from falling into a really closed way of looking at humanity. It helps heal our human relationships. Now, myself, my specialty being K-12 education, this is one of the works, things that we do at Johns Hopkins is encourage schools and districts, private, charter, independent, to include more and more primary sources in how you teach. Because it's there that you get to tease out the true story. It's one thing when you read a textbook or someone's interpretation of how they think it should be or what they think they meant, but when you read their actual words, you discover their humanness. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel really passionate about this because that has been my journey personally. You know, being African-American, my own struggles with race and all of those challenges here, you can tend to lean certain ways. But in my studying of the primary sources, I come to learn another narrative, that we're all humans. We all deserve grace and forgiveness. And it's only through this conversation with their true voices that we can really pave a path forward. And we want to do that amongst ourselves as adults, but we want to train children in that same way. And primary sources are really the only way we can do that. Selby, we are very lucky to be flanked by these four uh, extraordinary and very, very different documents today. Do, do you agree with Annika on, the, on, on that point about the, the original sources? And why, why do the original documents themselves matter so much? Well, I'm afraid if anyone came hoping for a hot debate, we might not have one, because I think uh, I'm in complete agreement with what Annika said. And going back to what Adam was saying, for me, the original documents are so important because it does tell us these were people. Yes. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, they weren't born historical figures. Yes. They weren't born marble statues. They were born human beings. Mm -hmm. I sometimes look at the collected letters of Jefferson or Franklin or Adams 
and think it would be a lifetime's work just to copy those out, let alone to have thought the thoughts and formulated the philosophy and written and sent them. And so it's the original documents that take us also back to the time that they were produced and I think makes it much easier to appreciate and understand what was happening then. It's very different to read the words of the Declaration of Independence from a broadside that was printed by John Dunlap the evening of July 4th, as I've had the, the great opportunity to do several times here at Sotheby's, than to read it in a textbook. Yeah. So let's have a look at the, uh, the documents themselves then. We've got four, four fascinating manuscripts uh, with us here today at Sotheby's. I'd like to look first at a document uh, coming up in the auction that's really seminal in the establishment of the English Empire. Selby, can you tell us about the, the Articles of Agreement granted to Sir Humphrey Gilbert in 1582 and what they symbolize? Well, we normally think of the founding as 1776 and some now think of it perhaps as 1619, but here we're going back even further mm. to really the first English expedition to what became British North America. People are generally familiar with the lost colony of Roanoke, yeah. founded by Walter Raleigh in 1585. This was a colony, very brief one, founded in Newfoundland by Humphrey Gilbert, who was actually the half-brother of Walter Raleigh. He was given this grant of six years by Queen Elizabeth to establish this colony. You can see in the language, and it is in that crabbed secretarial hand that Adam referred to, <laughs> so I'm going to read a, a transcription. Whereas Her Majesty hath given and granted unto Sir Humphrey Gilbert free liberty to discover, search, find out, and view such remote, heathen, and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of by Christian prince or people. So there's this preconception in Great Britain and all of Europe of what the unknown world was. Now the Spanish had already colonized Florida and much of what is now South America, the Caribbean. So Gilbert aimed higher and actually landed at Newfoundland. Now this, this grant came with a lot of strings attached. It's not as though Elizabeth I said, I want you to found a colony and I'm going to send you over there and I've hired an army to protect you. Now Gilbert had to raise his own funds, find his own ships and crew them Unfortunately, much of the crew turned out to be pirates, and he was there in Newfoundland for only a matter of perhaps two months. However, there was a ceremony where he was given a piece of land that was dug out of the earth and given to Gilbert that did, by the light of the day, establish that as an English possession. And so this document is really the very beginning for better or ill, I would say on the whole for better, of the English Empire. So that land not previously possessed of, you said that, this, this document really sets up that, that central idea of empire and colonialism with land ownership as, as contractual and exclusive. And of course, not previously possessed, there would have been indigenous people there, but they were not counted. And 
one of the first things Gilbert did was set up a tax system, believe it or not, because there were fishermen there. So in some ways, government has re uh, remained consistent over the course of those more than four centuries. Let's move on 200 years now to a very, very different document, almost a reversal of that first stirring of empire. Adam, can you tell us about the instructions given to the American peace commissioners in 1781, negotiating peace and independence following the, the Revolutionary War? Delighted to. It dates to um, 1781. It sits in this case in its encoded form because like almost all diplomatic communications in the, uh, the Age of Enlightenment, a high level of secrecy was kept. And it reads in part directed to truly as illustrious uh, collection of negotiators as has ever been found inside or outside of Major League Baseball. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, and Henry Lawrence. And this is what they were instructed to do. You are to accede to no treaty of peace which shall not be such as may first effectually secure the independence and sovereignty of the 13 United States according to the form and effect of the treaties subsisting between the said United States and his most Christian majesty. And secondly, in which the said treaties shall not be left in their full force and validity. If a difficulty should arise in the course of this negotiation for peace, from the backwardness of Great Britain to acknowledge our independence, you are at liberty to agree to a truce or to make such other concessions as may not affect the substance of what we contend for, and provided that Great Britain be not left in possession of any part of the United States. Two thoughts immediately spring to my mind, Simon. One is that still um, referencing the, uh, the victorious colonies as the 13 United States. In other words, their separateness is as important as their unity. This is still pre-constitutional talk. They're respected as states. The second is something that will seem very familiar to all of us who are experiencing the Ukrainian war right now. That is the core demand of the, uh, of the rebels of the, of the smaller country is not to accede any territory to the larger perceived aggressor. So that that idea is saying basically is saying, yes, you can arrange a truce, you can stop, you can halt, you can negotiate freely because obviously there are going to be significant differences and there were enough left to fuel second war in 1812. Nonetheless, the one thing we cannot accept, the bottom line is, we, the Brits can't remain in possession of a single inch of the United States. And indeed, that was a, that was a negotiation that they succeeded in, in executing. And so it's the resulting Treaty of Paris then from 1783. Yes. It's really that treaty rather than the revolution itself, which, which marks the yes. birth of the, uh, of the United yes. States. Yes. And, and these papers and the quote you've just read for us there, I think show us that the American Revolution was, was really so much more than a localized anti-colonial uprising against the British, don't they? Yeah, yes, and I think that's one of the most um, important points. In fact, one of the most interesting arguments and, and discoveries, if you like, of the recent revisionist history has been to emphasize the degree to which the, um, the war between the United States and Great Britain was not a simple anti-colonial war on the model of so many 20th century ones. It was very much an ideological quarrel within one family of uh, common thoughts. A wonderful book by Justin Du Rivage just making this point that the whole of the English-speaking world was divided into what he calls um, radical Whigs and executive Tories. 
and that in different parts of the English Empire, different factions won. In Great Britain itself, the Tories basically won, and in America, the radical Whigs won. And those groups had a great deal, still startling. One of the things that I never can get over in contemplating this period is that everything had to go back and forth between the two countries by ship. So it took four months, not half a second, to communicate, and yet, that communication took place very successfully through, through boats and writing. Yeah. But one of the truths is, is that they were always in constant communication. So there's a moment when Ben Franklin is actually brought into the Houses of Parliament by the younger Pitt, and that's a crucial moment in the consolidation of that radical wiggery. Um, John Wilkes, the great leader of the radical faction in England, one of the great fathers of the idea of civil liberties, is a hero in the United States. Some of you may remember, if you ever have read um, Boswell's Great Life of Johnson, that the key scene is when Johnson, the arch-Tory, meets John Wilkes, the arch-radical, over dinner, and they find, as in a way that Anika would, I think, endorse, they find a common ground even between those two extremes in civility and in conversation and a good dinner. But one of the people who's present at that legendary dinner is Arthur Lee, who's the American ambassador to Great Britain at that point. That's the kind of interpenetration between the, the two sides. And if you want a final uh, ironic uh, after effect of that uh, commonality, it's that, of course, Junius Booth, the greatest 19th century actor, names his son John Wilkes in honor of the great, of the great British radical. So as you've shared with us, there's an ideological argument at the very center of the founding fathers here. And um, we even have physical evidence, I think, of Alexander Hamilton's reading habits, you know, how he tutored himself in his it, side of that it, argument. Yes, indeed. The, one, of the, one of the great joys of my life was to visit the uh, New York uh, Society Library, which I'm sure many of you frequent as well, the oldest uh, lending library in New York, and you can actually examine library cards, the lists of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr what they borrowed from the Society Library in the 18th century. And they were both borrowing uh, novels and um, the works, and very significantly, as someone who wears the, uh, the French Légion, uh, borrowed an enormous number of works in French, including the works of Voltaire and the works of mm. Rousseau. And, we, and let's remember that both um, Jefferson and Franklin were delegates from America to the French and to the court of Versailles at that time. Mm -hmm. So the interpenetration not only of English and American, but of French Enlightenment ideas and America is one that we should, uh, we must never overlook. Fascinating. So, Annika, let me turn to you now. So you've thought a lot about the importance of these great Enlightenment thinkers to all Americans. Which other voices are in this, this conversation, and how did these founding documents impact African Americans and native communities of color? Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. You know, I want to answer that question. I want to double back off of what you said about this back and forth in communication. Of course, they didn't have Twitter and Facebook or email or cell phones. Or even but, telegraphs. Or, or, right, email. or any of that. They were, but they were communicating. They right. were talking, discussing, debating, having some type of conversation. And I think that one of the things that's been so important, especially when we think about the African-American story, is our participation in the great conversation. Now, somebody is going to say, well, what do you mean by great? And what I, I'm not talking about better than, but I'm talking about a conversation that is inclusive, that is big enough to hug all of us and draw all of us in. When we study primary sources and have a conversation, now look up here. Do I look like I have anything in common with these people on the stage with me? But here we are having a conversation. We have found a common ground. We have found a friendship. And even though our lives may be different, our experiences may be different, we definitely look different. Mm -hmm. But we, we have found something to talk about that draws us in. And so that was the key. When African Americans, when black people saw this conversation happening around them. There are stories of uh, the enslaved people sneaking into the master's library to steal books from like Robinson Crusoe or John Locke or any of those texts. They were, they were reading the Constitution, many of them. They were reading the Declaration of Independence. It was a revolution. It was a way to rebel against the system that they were confined in. But it also helped to affirm their humanness and that they had a right to participate in the conversation of this democracy. And so there's a story of Frederick Douglass came to value classical education through watching how the master's children and their friends were educated. And so he decided, I'm going to take that kind of education for myself. Now, it was against the law. If you were caught, as you know the story goes, the master forbade that, but he continued to steal it. He even went so far as to find the actual main textbook that was used in early American mm -hmm. schools called the Columbian Orator, where he could engage with Cicero and Socrates and many others. And so this was his way of saying, I'm going to join in this great conversation. In fact, Frederick Douglass would, um, there's, a, there's a piece that John Adams wrote, I can't, it's just coming to me right now, so I can't remember all the details, where um, he talks about, John Adams talks about his views on slavery. 
And Frederick Douglass took that, somehow got a, he was still enslaved, got a hold of that piece, took it back to his fellow men and women and read this. They would read these things together. They would practice orations together. And this was their way of saying, we are here. This is about us too. And we are going to insert ourselves into this conversation. And the enslaved people gave birth to the black intellectual tradition. It wasn't for the purpose of remaining segregated though. It was to be included. I always say Frederick Douglass would have gone up to Canada and lived happily ever after, like many enslaved people who escaped did, but he chose to stay. Why? To become an orator, why? To engage in this great conversation that helped create the relationship he had with Abraham Lincoln, that he could actually serve as a consultant with Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And so you'll see these stories, that's what the book the black intellectual, intellectual tradition is about, is about African-American people reading these primary sources for themselves. It's the reason why Frederick Douglass, even after everything he went through, would not denounce the Constitution. In fact, white abolitionists would get irritated with him that he wouldn't, but he was reading it and he was understanding how this applied to him too as an African-American. And so one of the beautiful things about this is why did this work so well? There was a common education that was going on there called classical education or liberalized education, or even you could say the study of the humanities. And we know that many of the founding fathers had this kind of education, which gave them the tools to have the civil discourse that eventually birthed America. But then the enslaved people observed this type of education and said, let's learn this for ourselves. But when it was illegal, when slavery ended, the schools that were set up, because it was classical education was like the public schools of today, it was the mm -hmm. only way people were educated. And so when, they, when slavery ended and they had to establish schools for the newly freed people, most if not all were classical, where they were learning about Socrates, they were learning how to have Socratic dialogue, they were reading these texts. And those same schools are what became the HBCUs of today. And so this type of education is what gave us Thurgood Marshall. This is what gave us Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and Anna Julia Cooper and Bayard Rustin, as someone has told, we talked about <laughs> earlier. All of these people that have, even Malcolm X, valued reading these classic texts. Even the founders of the Black Panther, not to create a segregated society, that wasn't the purpose, but it was a fight to say, we wanna be included in this conversation too. And that is the only, and I keep saying it, I know I sound like a broken record, that is the only path forward is through conversation, through civil discourse, through debate, through creating safe spaces where we can talk about our human experiences without being shut down, but bring them in the light of the story of America. So if the points of view are very different. There's yes. nonetheless, a, there's a shared language yes. there yes. That, that's used here. And, and in fact, the voices in that great conversation yes. are much more diverse and pluralistic than, than traditional yes. narratives have probably yes. allowed. I think yes. even Benjamin Franklin asked, yes. he called on the Iroquois people for their advice yes. at the yes. first Continental Congress. Yes, yes. So I love this story. It's one of my favorite <laughs> stories. Please look it up. Um, the native people, it was the leaders of the Iroquois nation we're at, I think, at the first Continental Congress. Mm -hmm. And I love this story because, you know, when we're seeing about the story of America, right, we kind of stop at, they stole that land, which is true, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody that said that. I mean, they took that land, because like, as you said, there were indigenous people here. And so there's this fight to keep what belonged to them. But at some point, 
there was a realization that that battle could not be won. And so they decided to kind of join in the birth of the nation. So they're at that first Continental Congress, I believe. I think it was the first one. And what the reason why they were there is because the Iroquois Nation, I think it was like five different nations that for hundreds of years were fighting against each other so much they were about to literally kill each other off. And so the five leaders, hundreds of years before this even happened, they created this constitution that would help them live in peace with one another even though they couldn't stand in one another. <laughs> and so Benjamin Franklin knew about this great law of peace. And he invited them to the Continental Congress to serve as consultants for the birth of the nation, for the creation of the Constitution. And you can actually look at the great law of peace and I think even the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. and you can just see- There are a, direct parallels very between the clauses yes, and how yes, they structure yes, that peace. Yes, yes, and they were invited. So that's an example of another diverse people because these documents are a part of the canon, the constitution, all of these. And so this is again, this example of diverse people engaging in this great conversation. And somehow something was birthed there that we're still evolving through. Thank you, um, Annika. Now, I want to shift the conversation a little bit, because Selby, it, when we look at this, uh, this document, the instructions to the peace commissioners, one of the things that struck me first is the fact it's, it's written in code. And I wanted to, to, to ask you if uh, ciphers were very common back then, and what, uh, why were they felt to be needed at this point? Well, Simon, I know you're the moderator, but I'd actually like to go back before I answer that question, because I, I've been struck listening. Annika and Adam both sounding the theme of inclusiveness, how Frederick Douglass didn't want to leave the United States. He wanted to help transform the United States into a place that he would be welcome. And when Adam was speaking, it really crystallized for me in a way that I hadn't thought of before. The American Revolution wasn't ignited because the colonists didn't want to be British. It was ignited because they wanted to be British and they felt they were not being given the rights of British citizenship. As I said, that, that crystallized it for me. That's why you had someone like John Dickinson who wrote the nation's first constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and later signed our current constitution, refused to sign the Declaration of Independence. He thought it was still too radical a step to take. Now, obviously, once that independence was declared, he was all in with the new nation. But it, it struck me that you were both sounding very similar themes, uh, although at different periods in the nation's history. Now, to go back to the encoding, we think of the American Revolution too much, I think, as a military action. Remember, the last engagement was at Yorktown in Virginia in 1781. And it was two years and more until the Treaty of Paris was signed. And during that whole time, where we're sitting now, was British-occupied land. So the military victories didn't give us true independence or end the war. It was diplomacy. And that is an aspect of the revolution and post-revolution, I think, that is too often overlooked. Obviously, these were very sensitive documents and different codes, substitution codes, numerical codes were used. This letter was actually sent in a book code, the best book to use for 
Codeine is a dictionary because it will have most of the words that you're looking for in it, and they're relatively easy to obtain, so you can make sure that all parties have the same edition of the book. But these are the instructions for the book code that was used using a Abel Boyer's English-French dictionary. This is John Jay writing. The second part of Boyer's Dictionary, in which the English is placed before the French, it is not paged. You will therefore number the pages, marking the first page with number one and so on. In each page, there are three columns. Let C denote the first, A the second, and B the third. Already some confusion there. Count the number of words from the top to the one you mean to use inclusive and add seven to it. Thus, for instance, the word absent in the third word in the third column of the second page is to be written in cipher as follows, 2.b.10. The dictionary I have was printed in London in 1771 and is called the 13th edition with large editions. So those instructions are relatively clear, but you can also see it wouldn't be the easiest code to break, which of course was the point, but some of the American commissioners, including John Adams, who we think of as a brilliant man and was a brilliant man, was nonetheless befuddled by this. And on his copy of the code, uh, someone noted for him, Mr. J has the key <laughs> to help him break it. But obviously we wouldn't just as today, don't want secret messages to fall into the hands of those who mean us harm. Yes. And so these yes. instructions were coded. It's very interesting because the documents we're selling are in three parts. We have the pure coded letter, we have John Jay's worksheet where he's breaking the code, and then almost as a commemorative, Benjamin Franklin had his grandson, William Temple Franklin, write out a clear copy which both Adams and Franklin attested as being a true copy of the instructions. Just to give a little credit to private collectors over the years, these papers were not necessarily valued at the time and could have been scattered. And in fact, these derive from two different private collectors and a more recent collector saw that they were related has put them together, and we'll see where they end up next. But they're being sold as a single? They are being sold as a unit. They do belong together, Absolutely. but it was private collectors who've reunited them. Given the complexity of that decoding key, it strikes me it's a miracle the US was founded at all. It wouldn't have made any sense if I was part can, of that can I negotiating just, group. Adam, just yes. to throw something in there, actually, because it's something I was thinking about, Son. One of the things that's fascinating about the Enlightenment uh, as a movement that clearly these documents all, in a sense, belong to, is that on the one hand, exactly as Anika's been describing so eloquently, it's a great revolution in the vitality of communication. Yeah. It's reflected in the letters. It's reflected in the handwriting, as yeah. I was saying, in, in the value of lucidity in all things. It's reflected in the way that the juntos were formed, the reading societies, the New York Society Library. Mm -hmm. All of those things were instruments coffee houses of communication. But it's also a period that has increasingly esoteric knowledge as well in the sciences or in a science like cryptography is a wonderful book by another Simon, Simon Singh, called The Code Book, which is just about 
18th century encoding and about uh, how it works. And all of these codes were eventually very easy to crack, though they didn't have to be terribly difficult because they just had to put up a kind of diaphanous screen in front of a, a, casual, a casual reader. But it's reflected even in someone, a figure like Benjamin Franklin, who on the one hand, we rightly think of as being a, a model of American lucidity, uh, communicating uh, brilliantly and in the most egalitarian possible way to a large audience. But at the same time, a lot of what Franklin was interested in was, by the standards of its time, very specific technical uh, knowledge, it's, and eventually expressed in things like the application, if not the invention, of bifocals, or the still highly controversial question of whether he really did capture lightning in a bottle or as electricity or not. So these, just to say that these uh, letters, these documents uh, reflect both of those impulses within the Enlightenment, the impulse to lucidity and the impulse towards uh, technological expertise. Now, Selby, a moment ago, you mentioned the power of, of diplomacy. So I, I'd like to turn now to a letter that Washington, uh, first president, wrote to John Jay in the mid-1790s, asking him to become the United States minister in, in London. What does Washington need Jay to do at this point, Selby, and, and why? Well, this, it's a wonderful letter. We were just five years old as a nation when this was written. Our great ally, monarchical France, had been overthrown by a bloody revolution. Really, I think it's, it's not an exaggeration to say we would not have been an independent nation when we were without the aid of, of France. But it was important that we maintain good relationships with France. The US minister at the time at Paris, minister just the term at the time for ambassador, was Governor Morris. Governor Morris was a great supporter of the monarchy and was not looked on happily by the Republic. Washington wanted to replace him with Timothy Pickering. The trouble was Timothy Pickering was the ambassador to Great Britain. John Jay didn't have a lot of time on his hands. He was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court at the time. But nonetheless, he was going to England to negotiate what would become Jay's Treaty, which was an attempt to try to hold Great Britain to actually following the agreement of the Treaty of Paris, which they had refused right. to do. Right. So in a letter that he wrote himself, it's not written by a secretary, and he's marked at the head, private and confidential, Washington very cautiously asks Jay, as long as you're going to London anyway, would you consider becoming minister, as you know, I have to replace Governor Morris, and I want Pickering to be the man for that job. He says, I don't want to plead my case, give it some consideration, but whatever your decision, let the matter stay strictly between us. So he doesn't want anyone else to even know that this proffer has been made. As it happens, Jay turns it down, Pickering stays in London, Morris is eventually replaced, and Jay goes to London where he negotiates the very unpopular in the US, Jay's Treaty. He is supposed to have said that upon his return, he could have traveled at night from New York to Boston simply by the light of his effigies being burned. 
gosh, what an image. And it, it reminds us uh, that, that, that revolutions are messy and take a, a, a long time. If we go back to those original sources, here we are, 1794, 10 plus years after the Treaty of Paris, and, and independence is only slowly taking root. The British haven't, as you say, met. The, they haven't followed the terms of the Treaty of Paris. They haven't vacated the forts. There are still issues with trade and tariff and so on. We're almost on the brink of war, I think, and at that point. And impressment of our ships and sailors. Yes. Uh, and essentially, Great Britain's attitude was, you know, what are you going to do about it? Right. And it festered for a while, but eventually there was the, the War of 1812. Mm. Wow. So as you say, yeah. the, the revolution and independence and true sovereignty was long a warning. It didn't all happen on July 4th. Yeah. And as a Canadian, I can say Canada is the only country which has a heroic tradition of the War of 1812. Brits have never heard of it. Americans try to forget about it. <laughs> Canadians think of it as the beginning of the self-assertion of, uh, of their own national identity. Just to throw out one other thought, um, Salbi, about something you were talking about. Though it's absolutely true, and, it was, and I think vital to understand that the American Revolution was, as I said, a kind of ideological quarrel within one family. Its military effects really are prescient of uh, 20th century anti-colonial warfare, exactly as you were saying. It's not that Washington ever wins a single great battle or a single decisive battle. It just is that the Brits become aware over time that they're never going to be able to control the situation. It's not unlike the American experience in Vietnam, actually, that even if they can win a battle, they will never win this war. Right. It, it was just the persistence yes. nuisance of the American troops and the Continental Army and their adoption of, frankly, methods of warfare that they had learned on from the, the Western frontier. From the from original. The, absolutely. Peoples. Absolutely. Annika, let's turn finally to a document of a, a rather more intimate character. This is a, a letter from 1804 written by Thomas Jefferson to his son-in-law, John Epps. Can you explain what, uh, what this one is all about, please? Yeah, I mean, it's a letter where he is, you know, offering his condolences um, because Epps' wife has, has passed away. And he's also alluding to this desire to reestablish a relationship or reconnection with John Adams. This is why I love primary sources, because their humanity always comes out. I love the letters. Even if it's about business, no matter, you get a little piece of who they are. Mm -hmm. And when we look at that little mention of hoping to reconnect with Adams in some way, that kind of reveals to you that there's a conflict. You know, we, when we think about the founding fathers, we think of them, I want to try to give you some context, we think of them as these buddies who just are best friends, they all agree on everything, and they came together to take over the world. And that's not really what's happening. They disagreed a lot. <laughs> some shot each other. I mean, they didn't agree with faith and religion. Some were deists, some were not. Some were Christian, some were not. Some wanted slaves, some didn't. That's a shocker. I mean, some people, a lot of us think of the founding fathers as all of them wanting to keep African Americans enslaved and all of them wanting to treat the native people a certain way. They argued about these things. It doesn't make things better, doesn't make the fact that my ancestors were all enslaved any better. It doesn't even really make me feel better, mm -hmm. but the truth sets us all free. Mm -hmm. And what freedom does it give to me? Well, it gives me this freedom to look at them as individuals, not as some monolithic thing, that they each have these stories. And so this, this mention of the conflict between he and John Adams really, again, reminds me of how John Adams' peace encouraged Frederick Douglass 
because John Adams was adamantly against slavery. An abolitionist. Yes, yes. And he wasn't a perfect man. No one is. And so that, that was very comforting to Frederick Douglass because I'm sure being a captive, being without mother or father, being separated from his family and treated terribly gave him certain views of America. I can identify with this. But then he finds this piece by John Adams and he realizes, wait, not all of the founding fathers are happy about my situation. And it changes his mindset about fighting for the country. And so then you see this little mention, Thomas Jefferson is wanting to reestablish this relationship. Well, they were, they were rival politicians. They had very different views on what kind of government they wanted to have. And they both definitely disagreed on slavery. You know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, had very, he had slaves and he slept with one of them for sure. But what we also realized Thomas Jefferson was very complex too because we see other writings that reveals this, this inner turmoil he had about that part of himself. And so it is, and this again goes back to me encouraging, if you're a teacher and you're listening to me, to please take a break from the textbook for a minute. Because a lot of times textbooks are created with a certain viewpoint. We should use them. This is not a slight against publishers. Don't be mad at me, everyone. But to go back and to balance that study of a textbook with the actual words. And so Thomas Jefferson here is saying, how can John Adams and I get back and have a relationship? Is that even possible? I think we find out later that that doesn't really happen. And so that's why this letter is so important too, because it reveals his, his humanness. He wasn't just so prideful that he's, I'm the one who you know, wrote this document and I'm one of the founding fathers. How dare you disagree with me? You know, and that goes back again to that importance of this type of education where we are learning to argue well, where, where it's okay to disagree. Disagreement doesn't mean I hate you. That's what uh, Thomas Jefferson is saying. We haven't agreed all this time, but I don't hate you. Can we, can we model that? <laughs> can, we, can we emulate that where we can disagree on history, we can disagree on our life experiences and how we perceive the world, our worldviews, but it doesn't mean we hate one another and we can build a bridge to one another. The, the power of that forum to, to, to argue, it, it seems, yes. in, in, in these, these documents, is absolutely enshrined yes. in the, the, the very origins of, of this country. Yes. But it's been challenged in recent times, yes. our ability yes. to argue yes. within that Socratic tradition, yes. to, to look at issues rather than personalities, to, to, to work with reason rather yes. than emotion, yep. is increasingly under threat, it seems, All in the time. US today. It is, and, and this is why I love the work that we're doing. I've been at the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins a year, a year today. Wow, okay, it's a year, it's my year anniversary there. And the reason I came there, I was at Howard University, I love Howard University, will always love Howard University, but the work that I'm doing at Johns Hopkins allows me to really look at what you're talking about and to find ways to encourage us to get back to that original tradition. Because it's really, our hope is really in the next generation. If we can train our young people in the art of the argument, we may be able to heal some things going forward. Because we'll never agree. America was created to celebrate difference. People came for different reasons, but you know, it was created so that if you have a different religion, you're not mistreated. Like it's, it's written up in the Constitution, like that you are allowed to be whatever religion you want to be or not be. 
In fact, you don't even have to think in your mind to agree. Just as long as you don't take someone else's freedom, that's all. As long as you give them space to be whoever it is they want to be. That's America, and that's, it's, one, it's the only country that has done this, where different races have come here, different beliefs have come here, different backgrounds have come here and have tried to find a way. It's not a perfect place, it's a, been a very painful place. But it is this constant working through this arguing that we come together and we learn to dwell in the same space in peace with that great law of peace as our inspiration. Yeah. And in fact, it's argument that the argument exists to prevent us going yes. to war yes. in a very real yes. sense. Yes. Our ability to debate yes. and argue rather than, than, than fight yes. is, uh, is how it works. Yes. Selby, I, well, Adam. This is such a great letter. It's probably my favorite of the ones we're discussing because it is so personal. Yes. The wife that Epps lost was Jefferson's daughter. Yes. And when she was a little girl, she stayed with the Adamses when Adams was minister to London. Now, John Adams has the distinction of being the first incumbent president not to be reelected. Mm -hmm. So there was bitterness yes, there. Yes. And on his last day in office, he filled a number of judicial posts with so-called midnight appointments. One of them led to the famous Supreme Court case, Marbury mm -hmm. versus, versus Madison. Uh, because Madison, as Secretary of State, refused to honor one of those last-minute appointments. Abigail Adams, remembering having taken care of Maria when she was a girl, sent a condolence letter to Jefferson. And Jefferson misinterpreted that as meaning yes. it's all patched up. Yes. And he sent a letter to Mrs. Adams to that effect and got a blast <laughs> back. And it was 10 years until that rift was healed. So it doesn't happen immediately, right. but they, they kept working. And somehow word got back to Jefferson that Adams was feeling better about it. And through the intermediary of Benjamin Rush, a mutual friend, they reestablished a correspondence from in about 1811 that continued until they both died, coincidentally and ironically, on July 4th, 1826, 50 yeah. years after they both voted to adopt the Declaration. Can I read the, the excerpt? Please I do. Was, okay. I enclose you a letter I received lately from Mrs. Adams, our present. The sentiments expressed in it are sincere. Her attachment was constant. Although all of them point to another object directly, yet the expressing them to me is a proof that our friendship is unbroken on her part. It has been a strong one and has gone through trying circumstances on both sides, yet I retain it strongly both for herself and Mr. Adams. He and myself have gone through so many scenes together that all his qualities have been proved to me and I know him to possess so many good ones, as that I have never withdrawn my esteem, and I am happy that this letter gives me an opportunity of expressing it to both of them. I shall do it with a frank declaration that one act of his life, and never but one, gave me personal displeasure, his midnight appointments. <laughs> if respect for him will not permit me to ascribe that altogether to the influence of others, it will leave something for friendship to forgive. 
I mean, you want human nature? Yes, that, yes, that's yes. such a beautiful expression, yes, and yet yes. he can't let go yes. and has to say yes. only one thing. <laughs> Damn Midnight Appointments. Midnight yes. Appointments such a great title for an American novel, Midnight Appointments. And yes. Can I just add one thing to what, of course, I agree with everything Anika was saying. In fact, it was thematic in my own uh, liberal credo, A Thousand Small Sanities, which was published a couple of years ago. The only thing I'd add to it, and it, it comes to mind when we speak about Jefferson, is that one of the things that makes Jefferson attractive with all of his deficits and faults is that he had a very profound, tragic sense of what the price of slavery would be for the United States. I tremble for my nation yep. when I think that God is just, yeah. he wrote. And he understood exactly how high a price America would pay for that tradition. And there are moments when the, the politics of pluralism simply fail, when intolerance becomes too uh, grave and when uh, oppression becomes too severe and it eventually produced what was to that moment the single bloodiest yes. war that um, yes. any peoples, any Western peoples had ever fought, the American Civil War. So I totally <laughs> um, endorse and underline the, the principles Anika was talking about so eloquently of conversation, dialogue, debate as the, the lifeblood of a democracy. But Jefferson's own example reminds us that there are, and Douglas's as well, that there are final limits when intolerance uh, can no longer be tolerated. A poignant conclusion to our, <laughs> our, our conversation today. Thank you, thank you all very much for that. I would like to say a very big thank you to my guests today, Dr. Annika Prada, Adam Gopnik, Selby Kaifer, and to all of you for joining us here at Sotheby's for this conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intelligence Squared. This event was organised as part of Sotheby's Book Week, a series of sales taking place in London, Paris and New York from the 4th to the 20th of July, featuring literature, illustrations and musical manuscripts that span continents and centuries. The New York auction will take place on Tuesday the 18th of July. Please visit sotheby's.com to find out more and register for further updates.